We'll open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We continue to make our way through this gospel, and yes, even this chapter. We're not at the end yet, but we will get there eventually. It's taken far longer than I had anticipated in looking at a rough draft of sermon ranges. And so this morning we're going to go all the way through to 51. <clears throat> and verse 51 serves as a bit of an end and a transition for a beginning that will be fairly involved to go through. There's quite a bit of material here that we've already looked at and discussed at some level, but you'll also see that there is a deeper application in Jesus' teaching as we go through this together. So just as a, a frame of reminder, we've been talking about the true bread, and last week we looked at Jesus' declaration that he said, I am the bread of life. It is the first of the true I am statements within the Gospel of John. And make no mistake about it, any Jew who ever heard Jesus say, I am anything, understood that he was claiming equality with God. He was claiming to be God, and they were not very happy about that. We looked last week at the fact that this bread that is in Jesus is spiritual. It is not a physical bread. It was manifested at the feeding of the 5,000, the multitudes that were there. In fact, that is what they really wanted more than anything else, was a physical bread that would alleviate their need to find food on a daily basis. The bread that Jesus provides is eternal. It doesn't last just like a single meal would. It lasts for all of eternity, and it brings true satisfaction to our lives. I want to pause here for just a second, thinking about the song that we just sang and thinking about the love of God, does He truly satisfy you? Is He truly all that your heart desires? Because if He isn't, and if His love doesn't satisfy you, it's not because there's been some kind of delinquency on His account. There's not been some kind of short-sightedness or impartial provision. He has given us all that He has to give in Himself. And so he is the bread of life, the one that's satisfied. Now, there is a requirement in enjoying this bread and taking this bread. One, we have to come to him. And to come to him means that we come by faith. We have to take this step of action. We have to believe that he truly is the Son of God. We repent from our sin. We turn from our old way of living. We leave it all behind to come to him. And we believe in his perfect provision at the cross in the finished work of the cross for our salvation. This bread of life is a sovereign bread, and we looked last week at the introduction of the doctrine of election in this passage that we are given to Jesus by the Father as a gift to him, and as a part of this giving of the gift, Jesus preserves us not only in this life, but for all of eternity. In fact, that is His primary purpose, is to keep all that the Father has given to Him so that none will be lost and He will raise it up on the last day. So you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been given to Him as a gift by the Father for His purpose of preservation so that on our final day, or the day that this earthly world comes to an end, we will be raised to be with Him in heaven for all of eternity. Now, we're going to see some similar statements made in our passage here today. So we're going to look first off at verses 41 and 42 of chapter 6. 
And we're going to see the complaint that was made against Jesus by the Jews. And then we're going to look at a second section and go from 43 down to 51. So here's what we see in John 6, 41 to 42. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? So this complaint that is raised against these Jews are likely the Jewish leaders in the synagogue at Capernaum, there's some explanation down in the chapter, verse 59, that identifies the location that this teaching is likely taking place. Some believe that it could possibly be outside the temple. Some believe that it could be inside. But nonetheless, these are the Jewish leaders at Capernaum. This word grumbling here is translated as muttered complaints and whispers of displeasure. There isn't an out-and-out directed statement at Jesus. There isn't a challenge to the statement that He's made, but it is this quiet grumbling that is growing to a crescendo as people are muttering and saying things under their breath. Have you ever said something under your breath? Have you been in a room where multiple people at the same time are muttering under their breath? I think about a government meeting where there's some kind of a large gathering and a, a speaker says something that his opponents displease of and they begin to grumble and mutter amongst themselves and it becomes an uproar of displeasure at what is being said. Now, this is the same kind of muttering and mumbling that took place in the nation of Israel in the wilderness wandering thousands of years ago. It's the exact kind of position that the people were taking against Jesus that they took against Moses and God at their time in the wilderness. God had provided them manna from heaven on a daily basis and they wanted meat. Jesus provided this miraculous meal and they wanted more every day. Their dissatisfaction with Moses led to a rebellion and Jesus' words here will lead to His being rejected by, the, by those He is speaking to. And this is what we see at the end of chapter 6, when Jesus really draws a line in the sand about what it means to accept the bread of life. So this complaint that is being made centers around Jesus' identity, who it is that He is claiming to be. The leaders are incensed that Jesus has made a claim to have come down from heaven, because after all, this is Jesus the son of Joseph and Mary, who has grown up here in Galilee. We've seen him all of his life. We know who he is. We know his whole family. How in the world could you ever say that you have come down out of heaven? It was an inconsistency that they could not justify or rationalize in their own mind. Now, if you remember earlier in the chapter, the Judean Jews wanted to kill Jesus for his claims to be equal with God, and now the Galilean Jews are outraged with him because he is claiming to have come down from heaven. But they don't know about his being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, do they? They have such a human understanding that they presuppose that they know all there is to know, and there cannot possibly be any divine revelation that they themselves are already not aware of, And so it becomes an inconsistency that they just cannot reconcile in their own minds. And so they reject the claim that Jesus has come down out of heaven, but they are completely wrong. They are unable to refute 
his works. They're unable to refute the miracles that he has performed. And so now they're going to focus on him, the messenger, over the message that he is speaking. They are closed off to divine revelation and they're locked into this human reasoning that will not allow them of believing anything that they can't explain themselves. They're incapable of believing that God was revealing himself to them in the flesh. What a great tragedy it is for the multitudes of people to be confronted with the reality of who Jesus is and totally miss it, completely reject it, and continue on their stubborn way, bound for an eternity separated from God. So this complaint centers around the identity of Jesus, the fact that he has claimed to come down out of heaven, and so now Jesus is going to respond to their grumbling. So read along with me in verses 43 through 51. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Now remember, they're not confronting him directly. They're just talking amongst themselves, and he knows their hearts, and he knows what they're saying. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm not exactly sure what the Jewish people thought when he said, I am the bread of life, but he made no mistake about it here. He's up the ante, if you will, by saying that the bread that he is going to give is his very own flesh. So as we look at the response that Jesus gives to the people here, in verses 43 and 44, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The first thing we're going to see here is this. The Father draws. Now this is the completion of, or the other part, of what was introduced in our passage of Scripture last week, as it relates to the doctrine of election. Now, there have been sermons preached on this single verse, on this first half of the verse, and there is great division within the Christian community about what this verse actually means. John Piper says it like this. This verse could mean two different things. On the one hand, it could mean that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing, and God draws everyone, but only some come. If that is true then God's drawing doesn't cause the coming. It only makes the coming possible. And then the one who comes provides the cause. Or on the other hand, it could mean that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And everyone whom he draws does come because God's drawing infallibly produces the coming. This would mean that the Father only draws some since all don't come. And that the decisive cause of the coming is God, not man. And so the way that we would interpret this verse is either God is the one that causes the coming or man is the one that causes the coming based upon whether or not God calls some or God calls all. 
There is this prevalent idea within the Christian community that God has indiscriminately shed his grace upon all humankind and has given us the ability to choose to respond to this grace on our own accord. This is known within the theological conversation as pervenient grace. If it is true, excuse me, it is true that God has showered us with his grace, because after all, even the people that we would deem to be evil and wicked still enjoy some blessing and pleasure in this world, and they don't always get what they deserve while in this world. And so in that sense, God has certainly shed his grace upon all of humanity. But in the matter of salvation and having the ability to respond to the offer of salvation independently, the Bible paints a very different picture. Let me share with you some of these verses which help to centralize our understanding of salvation and the doctrine of election and God's eternal work in the past in drawing and calling the elect to himself. Unregenerate people are dead in their sin and unable to respond to God. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses in your sins. It goes beyond that and says that we are actually slaves to our unrighteousness. Jesus says in John 8.34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The Bible tells us that in our unregenerate situation, we are alienated from God. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, we were called the enemies of God in Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The Bible says that the unregenerate are spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It also says that the unregenerate are captive to Satan, 2 Timothy 2, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In fact, it goes on to say that the unregenerate are trapped in Satan's kingdom, Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In fact, it says in Romans 5, 6, that we are powerless to change our sinful natures. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It also says that the unregenerate are unable to please God in any way. And those who are in the flesh, not saved, cannot please God. And that also we are, they are un, incapable of understanding spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the question is, if, is if this describes the unregenerate man or woman, how is it that they can independently and arbitrarily choose to respond to the gospel call. Well, the way that we would understand and explain that is that God opens your eyes and gives to you the measure of faith to be able to respond. And apart from that, we don't have the capacity to respond to God on our own. Now, to be sure, the human will is involved in coming to Christ since no one is saved apart from from believing the gospel. 
But sinners cannot come to him of their own free will. We come because we are drawn by the Father. Now, again, there is great division within the body of Christ about this teaching, about how this is understood and interpreted. And so what we need to do is define the common ground is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. You can still be a brother and a sister if you don't believe in the doctrine of election. I believe that it waters down God's sovereignty and God's hand in those that have come to him. So we're going to look at this a little bit more detail now. The Father draws. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, we've looked at this many times, that Jesus was sent by the Father into the world that he created to redeem a people for himself. It is the consummation of the eternal plan of redemption. God said, go, and Jesus went, and he did exactly what God told him to do. This drawing is intentional, set in eternity past, and this drawing is centered in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this is the completion of what was introduced in last week's passage as it relates to the doctrine of election. Jesus said, all the Father gives me will come to me. And here he says that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So if this drawing isn't selective by the Father, then the negative that is expressed in verse 44 is pretty meaningless. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Those who believe in provenient grace, that God has given the gospel invitation to all mankind and all have an opportunity to respond to it, they point to a verse like this in John 12, 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This points to the distinction that Jesus is making here, that all men, not just Jewish men, will have the ability to respond to me. It is all without distinction. It is not all without exception. And that would be the difference in how we would understand this when God doesn't call all because not all come. The drawing of God results in the coming of man and its attention that will never be resolved in our Christian community today. Number two, the second thing we see here is that the Son raises. The Father draws and the Son raises. The second half of verse 44. And I will raise him up on the last day. Again, it's the culmination, the consummation of our salvation. That we will be resurrected like Jesus. And we will spend an eternity with him. Now, we dealt with this in detail last week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Number three, the Father teaches. Now, this is a very interesting verse. Verse 45 It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, in most Bibles, that quote that's there is in all caps, and it means that it's a reference to something that was said in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus has done is he has paraphrased out of Isaiah 54, 13, and he is now explaining the drawing of the Father. He's not just putting it out there, but he's explaining the work of drawing by the Father. And they shall be taught of God. Again, a paraphrase from Isaiah 54, 13. And there's two points to this. This is pretty detailed. You don't have to write this down. But there's two points that are being made here in Jesus' quotation 
of this verse in Isaiah. First of all, this was spoken by Isaiah who prophesied of the future restoration of the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and exile. And so what Isaiah is doing in the midst of ruins is he is prophesying of a time in the future and they shall all be taught of God. So Jesus is making a typological connection for the Jewish people based upon their knowledge of the Old Testament and the heritage that they are also proud of. So the Messianic community, the New Testament community, the body of Christ, and the drawing of the saving reign of God are the typological fulfillment of the restoration of Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. So when Isaiah prophesied of the restoration of Jerusalem, that came to pass. And so Jesus is using this verse as a typological reminder of not only what God has done in the past, but what he himself is doing as the one who has been sent from God, as the one who is the bread of life. So this is a typological reference here to the work of Christ that would be very, very clear in the minds of the Jews who would be familiar with the Babylonian exile and the eventual restoration of the nation of Israel. Now, the second point that Jesus is making here is this. God's people are taught by God But Jesus is taking this a step further, and what he is saying is that God's people are taught by me, the bread of life. What Jesus is saying is that the Father teaches internally, in the heart, not externally, in the physical hearing of the truth. This is also referenced in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, apart from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's law exists only in writing in the tablets. Isn't that right? They only had what was written for them to read and study. They did not have the Spirit of God within them. And so this is a part of what Jesus is referencing, is that in the future, all will be taught of God, and I am going to be the one who teaches them, and my teaching is going to be taken internally. That's why when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying you need to hear this on the inside, not just on the outside. What I'm saying is incredibly important, and you need to take this in to the heart of hearts. When we hear the truth of God's Word, we are either taught internally by taking it in, receiving it, applying it, and living it, or we are merely taught externally because we have physically heard the truth of His Word, but we have set it aside to do our own thing. When the Gospel is preached, when the truth of God's Word is preached, it either resonates internally, resulting in a response, or it is limited to the external, resulting in rejection. So they will all be taught of God. They will be taught internally, And I am the one who is going to be teaching them. When the Father draws, His truth is incorporated internally, meaning that the Father is the one who is revealing this truth to your heart, enabling you to understand it, and He is the one that is actually teaching you. 
Now, there is an appealing aspect to man in the message of the gospel. There is a God, and you are separated from Him, and you can know Him through the sacrificial work of Jesus, and apart from that, you will be separated from God for all of eternity, and you will suffer. And people say, well, I don't want to suffer. I like the idea of going to heaven and being with God and being happy all the time and not suffering in in eternity, if that's really there. So there's this appeal to the gospel message that appeals externally but never makes it into the heart. It is simply set aside or it is rejected. Now, I believe that the parable of the sower is a perfect example of this reality. You know, the seed was scattered and some fell on the road and the birds came and ate it away. And some fell on the rocks and the heat of the day scorched it and nothing happened. And some fell amongst the thorns and the carries of life choked it out. But some fell on this fertile soil and it brought forth great fruit. You see, when God teaches internally, it gets to the fertile soil of the heart. When we are dismissing or rejecting what God is saying, it never penetrates beyond the external. And it's like the seed that fell on the road or in the rocks or in the thorns. So the Jews who claim to, be, who claim to have been taught by the Father will prove this to be true if they believe in Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. Behold, they all will be taught of God. And if you are truly taught of God, then He is going to teach you internally. And if He is teaching you internally, then you are going to respond to Me. So the Father draws, the Son raises, the Father teaches, and now we look at the Son's authority. Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, I'll be honest. In reading this, that sounds like it's kind of an add-on. It sounds like it might be out of place. Maybe it's some kind of um, something that John might have inserted that Jesus didn't really say. But when we understand what he has said so far and the application that he's making here, it actually is a very profound truth. You don't have to see God to be taught by God. If you remember earlier in John, Jesus rebuked the Jews by saying, neither have you seen his form, nor have you heard his voice. Remember that? And so this is a bit of a repeat of what was initiated within the Judean community, is that they had never seen his form, neither had they heard his voice. So when Jesus is drawing the line in the sand about his authority, the first thing that we see in this is he is from him. He is from the Father. Jesus asserts his authority as the only one who has ever seen the Father. There is no Jew who would ever debate that no man has seen the Father. But Jesus says, I have seen the Father. I have seen Him because I have come from Him. He is the only one who can speak authoritatively about the Father because He has both seen Him and is from Him. This intimate relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is shared by no one else. Moses had tremendous revelation, but he never saw the Lord. Isaiah was wowed at the train of the robe in the temple, but he never saw the Lord. All the prophets of old that we would wonder how they ever did what they did never saw the Lord. Only Jesus has seen the Father 
and he has seen him because he is eternal with him and has been and actually comes from him. Now, this is true because Jesus speaks for the Father. Think about it like this. Jesus is the mediator of the Father's teaching. You know what a mediator is, right? A mediator is a go-between. If you have a conflict between another party and you can't resolve it, you might get a mediator to resolve what's going on. So you have this mediator that works out the message and then communicates the message to the other people. Well, Jesus is the one who mediates the Father's teaching. He is the one who narrates what God has said. He came to do and to say what the Father has instructed Him to do, and that's exactly what He is doing. What He says is eternally binding and as truthful as any other part of the revelation that the Jews would cling to because He has come from the Father and He speaks on the Father's behalf. He is the completion and the fulfillment of all that the Father is teaching. Letter C. He holds eternal life. The Son has authority because the Father has granted to Him eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. God's self-revelation is in Christ, and if one has been taught by the Father, they will believe in Him, and they will have eternal life. Letter D, He is the life. Verse 47, again, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Eternal life is found in nothing and in no one else. Eternal life runs exclusively through the cross. Doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter how moral you are, doesn't matter how good you are, if you don't have Christ, you don't have eternal life. Now, we didn't talk a lot about this in the previous messages, but bread was a food staple in the Middle East. It still is. In fact, bread is a food staple in many parts of the world. Do you find it a surprise when you go out to eat and you sit down at a restaurant and they bring you bread? The necessity of bread, the essential nutrient that comes from bread connects with people in a very obvious way. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And the implication is that we must receive this bread into our life in order to have life. His being the bread of life is far superior to the bread that the Jews held near and dear, the manna from heaven, during the wilderness wanderings. And this is why he says in verse 49, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness And they died. The manna which God sent from heaven ensured physical life for the nation in the desert, but it did not impart to them eternal life, as Jesus asserts will take place if you take of his bread. All the fathers who ate the manna in heaven have all died. There is none who is still alive. Jesus says in verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So God's eternal plan of redemption given in His Son, so that we will live, is what takes place at the cross. Jesus now gives a metaphorical instruction that will be the beginning of the end for the superficial believer. Jesus says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. This is the fifth time that Jesus has made this statement about himself in this discourse, that he is the bread of life. And this time he does take it a step further and he makes the connection of his physical body, his flesh, being the spiritual bread. And what Jesus says is that we must eat his flesh. Now, spiritually minded people understand that this is a metaphor, but these physically minded people don't get this at all. In fact, you see their objection in verse 52, which we'll begin to look at next week. But Christ offered his flesh as a sacrifice, not merely for Israel, but for the world. He died for people from all races and cultures and ethnic groups, not just for the Jewish people. This is what we read in Isaiah 45:22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says, I give my flesh for the world, he means for all of mankind, from all races, all cultures, all backgrounds, not just for the Jewish people. Now, by way of introduction, and to deal with it because it's likely popped into your head, is that this verse tends to remind us of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But Jesus is not making that connection here. And there's several reasons why he's not making that connection. First of all, the Lord's Supper wouldn't be instituted for another year. They would have absolutely no idea of understanding what he's talking about. Secondly, salvation is by faith alone, not by participating in some kind of a religious ceremony. Thirdly, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he uses the word body and not the word flesh. It's a subtle distinction, but it's a very important one. Lastly, he is clearly talking about his substitutionary death on the cross. He didn't die on the cross so that we could be saved by observing the Lord's Supper. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about the sacrament of communion and the different understandings and backgrounds associated with that. But here's where we want to land today. Jesus is the bread of life, and if you come to him, then you will have eternal life. You come to him because the Father has chosen to draw you, meaning God is teaching you internally. We don't need to get hung up on how we understand or explain that. But here's the bottom line. If you feel like God is calling you to respond to him, you can rest assured that the Father's teaching you internally. When you can sit through a sermon or you can read God's word or you can hear the gospel message and say, well, yeah, you know, that sounds good and all, but you can be assured God is not drawing you. But you and I who know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior can do nothing but thank him for his provision on the cross. Would you bow with me? As we pray. Father, we thank you that in the depth of our need, in our depravity, in our lostness, in our alienation, in our entrapment to sin. You sent Jesus to set us free, to rescue and redeem, to preserve and to raise. 
And Father, we have nothing to say other than thank you for what you have done for me. God, as we contemplate the great love that you have for us and the sacrifice and the cost that is involved in that, would you burden our hearts to live for you in a way that brings you glory and honor? We are all far from perfect. But we pray, Father, that you would give to us a desire to strive forward, to not stand still, to not look back, but to pursue the love and the grace expressed through the cross. Father, you are wholly good. We thank you for that. We pray that you would remind us each and every day and all throughout each and every day of just how much you love us in the sending of your Son. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing, please?